Welcome to the Campus Exchange, an AI for Students podcast. I'm Mitch Barron, an associate with the Initiative on Faith and Public Life with AEI's academic programs. This week, we're excited to have opened applications for our 2022 Summer Honors Program, which is a fully funded opportunity to study public policy alongside other undergraduates in Washington, D.C. with an AEI scholar. If you're interested in applying, you can find the link in our show notes. For today's episode, I'm excited to share a conversation from last year's Summer Honors Program that I moderated between Annie Lowry and Scott Winship on economic mobility, poverty, and opportunity. I'm pleased to move forward with our discussion and to be joined by two excellent panelists today, the first of which is, is Annie Lowry. Annie is a staff writer with The Atlantic, where she covers economic policy. Previously, she covered economic policy for The New York Times, and prior to that was the Money Box columnist for Slate. She's also a staff writer for The Washington Independent and served on the editorial staffs of Foreign Policy and The New Yorker. She's the author of Give People Money, How a Universal Basic Income Would End Poverty, Revolutionize Work, and Remake the World. Joining her is Dr. Scott Winship, resident scholar and the director of poverty studies at AEI. We're joining AEI. Scott served as the executive director of the Joint Economic Committee. During his time there under Chairman Mike Lee, Scott created the Social Capital Project, a multi-year research project to investigate the evolving nature of social relationships, including families, communities, workplaces, and religious congregations. Scott was also a visiting fellow at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a fellow in the Economic Studies Department of the Brookings Institution, and the research manager of the Economic Mobility Project at the Pew Charitable Trusts. He's been published in numerous outlets, including National Affairs, National Review, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. Scott holds a PhD in social policy and an MA in sociology from Harvard University. He also holds a BA in sociology and urban studies from Northwestern University. So thank you both for for being here this afternoon. I'd love to kick off the, the panel with a conversation about economic mobility. You know, there seems to be kind of two competing narratives floating around among policymakers, economists, scholars. You know, the first is, is that upward mobility is declining and, and is really only sort of accessible to a, an increasingly small percentage of Americans. And the other narrative sort of being that things really aren't that grim and that most Americans can achieve some sort of upward mobility compared to previous generations. Maybe starting with Annie, you know, in, in your opinion, which narrative do you think is, is closer to reality? I'm going to give the really obnoxious answer of saying, you know, it's a cloudy picture and kind of both. I think that we have really, really great data showing that the birth lottery, so the family that you're born into and the structure of that family and where you grow up and the circumstances of how you grow up are highly predictive and determinative of much of the rest of your life. But at the same time, these are kind of complicated things. And I think it's always worth thinking about them in a kind of nuanced way. There's a question of just, right, like how bad is inequality in the United States? Is it bad in terms of income? Is it worse in terms of wealth? Is it determined by racial grouping? And all of that matters too, right? Like if we were a lower inequality society, we might think about mobility really differently than we do. And then I think that there's also the kind of broader consideration of just welfare. How are people doing? What are the economic struggles that they're facing? Are they having trouble having the number of kids they want, going to college if they want to, getting the careers that they want? You kind of want to be, I think, 
careful. Having said all that, you know, I, I do think that there's some troubling data that we have, and it comes from multiple sources, suggesting that mobility is a really, really big problem in American life, and also suggesting that it's one where public policy can make a difference. Great, Scott. I will endorse the cloudy, complicated basic framing that Annie used, which I think is absolutely right. You know, a lot of the research that I've done over the years is along the lines of trying to convince people that in terms of our living standards, things are not as bad as we generally think. Poverty is at an all-time low. Middle-class incomes are at an all-time high. Median earnings for men and women are at an all-time high. So there's a lot of metrics where we are definitely, in my view, better off than, than we've ever been. If you're talking about economic mobility specifically, then that's actually an issue where I, I think you know there's a lot more reason for concern than I do in other areas. To start with, I think we ought, regardless of how much poverty or, or upward mobility we have, I think we ought to, ought to always be striving to do better. So for upward mobility, today, if you're born in the bottom fifth, you know, there's about a 40 to 45% chance that you're going to remain in the bottom fifth yourself when you're an adult. And, you know, that means 55%, 60% escape the bottom fifth, but they don't go that far. It's not sort of upward mobility necessarily into the upper middle class. So I think we ought to be working on that on that number. I think there's some evidence it's getting worse over time, especially if you look at absolute mobility, which is just whether you're better off in real terms than your parents are. That's a really common, you know, it, it sort of gets into increasing levels of cloudiness because China probably has higher upward mobility in that regard than we do in terms of kids being better off than their parents, but we wouldn't want to trade them. Poor kids actually have much a much better chance of making more money in absolute terms than their parents, because if your parents are poor, it's easier to do a little bit better than them. But we wouldn't choose to, to grow up poor so that we could have better absolute mobility. So, yeah, I think it would be nicer if we could get this conversation off to a start, you know, where we had clearer conclusions and clearer disagreements. But for now, it's, it's going to have to remain a little bit muddy. We'll see if it, if it stays muddy. Yeah, and, and maybe kind of following up on that too. I mean, Scott, I'd, I'd love to give you a chance to highlight you know, the, the recent report that you co-wrote with Brookings, talking about kind of the, the generational poverty gap between you know, Black and white Americans. Tell us a little bit about that research and, and maybe why you think it's a, an important piece for, for policymakers you know, going forward. Yeah, sure. So again, I, I would contrast this a little bit with you know, a lot of what, I've, what I tend to say, which is like that we worry too much about income inequality, the top 1% and all of that. We may get into some of that, and Annie and I will have love disagreements on some of that. But I do think you know, the, the main, maybe the most important form of inequality that we that we have that we ought to be focused on is this inequality between blacks and whites. And that shows up on economic mobility, intergenerational mobility. I wrote a paper with Richard Reeves at the Brookings Institution and some of our colleagues at AEI and, and Brookings. And essentially, for the first time, we were able to look at adults, their parents, and their grandparents and look at whether mobility differences across three generations were different. And, and the short version is, yes, they're quite a bit different. If you're an African-American in your 30s today, there's about a one in five chance that you're in your third generation of being in the bottom fifth of the income distribution. So one in five. If you're white, that's more like one in 100. And it's really important, even if you're sort of thinking about poor people today. So a lot of times, I think even social scientists will sort of say like, well, we want to Look at black-white inequality, but we'll we'll control for income. You know, we'll we'll only look at poor whites and poor blacks. 
And then we're really looking at apples to apples, but that, that turns out not to be the case either. If you're just looking at people in the bottom fifth of the income distribution among African-Americans, I think 50% are in their third generation being in the bottom fifth. Among whites who are in the bottom fifth, I think it's only like eight or 9% that are in their third generation of being in the bottom fifth. So it, it really speaks to longstanding inequalities that, you know, 50 years on from the major victories of the civil rights movement, we haven't narrowed at all. Any, anything to add on that, Annie? Yeah. I mean, I think that this is really important research and pretty shocking, not in the sense of surprising, but in the sense that, that we've been living through through decades where we had felt like we were perhaps making progress. And certainly a lot of attention was being driven to this issue. You know, a lot of things seem not to be working. I'd also point to some research where I think this kind of raises questions more than it perhaps provides answers, but that came out of, I think it's the St. Louis Fed, but it's one of the Federal Reserve's banks, basically showing that young Black folks who went to college the burden of debt and the lack of family wealth that there is to help them with that means that going to college does not seem to make you better off in wealth terms. And so that's like a very troubling... Again, I think that this is a place where we probably need more data and more research on this. But I think you know when you're starting to think about solutions, like we've, we've long thought, and I do think that this is true, that if you can get enough educational attainment, you join the kind of winner out of the winner take all economy in which we, we know that one of the things that has been happening is that wage growth has been stronger for folks who went to college than who didn't, and especially folks who just have a high school degree or dropped out as opposed to finishing. And so I think that, that there is at least reason to start looking really intently at and becoming concerned about the educational component of this as it relates to race and wealth, as Scott described. But yeah, I mean, it's extremely, it's extremely, extremely troubling. And I think, yeah, a place where, where probably we need more data and, and, and probably more policy. Yeah. And, and another angle here, obviously, is, is the pandemic of this past year, which I, I think has you know, put a damper on, on our kind of hopes for the economy and then upward mobility. You know, Annie, I, I was looking through a piece that you had recently written in The Atlantic talking about you know, kind of the, the specific generation of millennials and how they're yeah. influenced by, by the pandemic and, and that's made their prospects less hopeful. Can you kind of talk through, you know, your argument in that article and, and maybe are you more optimistic now that we seem to be emerging in a way or are you still pessimistic about their trajectory? Where do you kind of sit with that? Yeah, I think it's kind of two things that gives me some concern. So the first is that millennials were hit really hard by this recession. This recession was really, really disproportionately bad for younger workers, workers of color, workers in frontline service jobs who had these really high unemployment rates. Whereas a lot of kind of white collar workers, they were much less likely to lose their jobs and also their wealth held up really well. If you owned a house or you had some investments in something like the stock market, you know, credit conditions were still pretty good. I've talked to a lot of, right? Like it seems like there was actually like a small boom in small business formation, which is kind of crazy to wrap your mind around that kind of thing. So there's that. And you know, I think that a kind of important second piece here is we're now seeing millennials or folks up to the age of 40, right? So not young anymore, are starting to become economically prepared and very interested in home ownership. We have a housing shortage and a housing crisis. This is hard to solve. It's going to have to be solved at the local policy level in no small part. And I think that I don't know how this is going to play out, but it's a thing that I'm, I'm very interested in, and concerned about. 
you know, there's something like a shortage of 4 million homes, which is driving prices up for existing homeowners who then become very interested in using the regulatory process to prevent anybody else from building more houses. That's a really big thorny issue. So I would say that those are the two things that two of the many things that I'm looking at that make me think that it could be hard, right? It's just crazy to, I can't think of very many assets where you're owning one makes you prevent somebody else from owning one, but it's true for houses. So those are two of the things that I'm kind of thinking about in terms of younger Americans wanting to settle down. Yeah. Any, anything to add there, Scott? So regarding millennials, I think I have, a, I have a more optimistic picture than I think Annie and others. And this isn't, this isn't sort of a left-right thing. Some of you might know Phil Klein, who's at National Review. He's written a book with a very sort of doomsaying title, that I, but, it's, but essentially it's about how the millennials are screwed. And I, you know, it's, it may be, but I'm sort of more optimistic. I think that ultimately, you know, millennials are going to look back on the financial crisis and be like, wow, that was, that was like, well, bad in the pandemic. You know, we got a one-two punch early in our lives, but boy, if those aren't the worst things that happened to millennials over their lives, then I really feel for, feel for that generation. In terms of how last year went, I think there's actually like a pretty remarkable success story about that things were not worse last year just in terms of hardship. The best numbers, we don't have great monthly estimates or kind of short-term estimates about poverty and income, but the best ones I've seen come from Columbia University has a center on poverty and social policy. And they show that poverty, it didn't go up during last year. So it started out the year basically low, the lowest on record and didn't go up. And that you know is a testament to the unprecedented relief and uh, you can call it stimulus. I think relief is probably a more appropriate word that were in the, the various spending packages last year, which I think in some ways went, went too far, but, but it really speaks to, I think, how remarkable it is that as a society, we're, we're affluent enough that we can sort of make it through a year and a half where people essentially like, couldn't leave their home for, for much productive stuff and, and, and yet keep the poverty rate relatively low. The mobility picture, I think, you know, is just going to be a disaster. And that's, I think, what hasn't gotten enough attention. Raj Chetty and his team have have some data where they look at this online math platform and how many lessons kids were com- completing over time. And you can see day by day, you know, when the, when the lockdown hit, you know, everybody's participation in these math lessons plunged. But then for kids who are in the upper quarter of zip codes, it eventually got back to where it was by the end of the school year. This was in 2020. But for, for kids in the poorest zip code, they ended the year something like down you know, 40% or something like that where they should have been. And that I think, you know, to some extent, I would say that we prioritized reducing poverty, maybe to the detriment of concerns about longer term upward mobility. You know, we didn't, we didn't get kids back in school sooner. We didn't prepare for like remedial summer programs this summer. So I think there's a lot that that we actually did wrong, even though it's a pretty remarkable success story from the perspective of poverty. Yeah, and it does the the degree to which children experienced this in different ways, depending. So I also think that there has been more barriers for lower income folks who've seen more things like childcare closures, childcare center closures, getting back to work and getting back to some normalcy. And I think because some lower income communities were so affected by the virus in health terms and in death terms. Folks have also been hesitant to send kids back for understandable reasons to in-person schooling. I mean, this just was so unprecedented. And in some ways, I feel like the economic response, right? Like the giant money hose was easy enough to turn on. 
but dealing with these really difficult questions, and I'm I'm sure it's probably a concern that I'm I'm sure it's a concern Scott chairs, but of kids who are on individualized education plans who might have language and literacy challenges, I think that there's reason to be extremely concerned about those kids, especially. Yeah, and and maybe transitioning a little bit. I mean, this this kind of segues pretty pretty well into sort of the shifting landscape. You know, specifically kind of on the political right surrounding welfare. We have a lot of kind of new new policies or new ideas coming out. You know, such as Senator Romney's child allowance plan or President Biden's child tax credit. Maybe turning to Scott first. I mean, how do you how do you kind of respond to to this sort of shift and this kind of embrace of of policies that that might kind of buck the trend of, of what might normally come from from a conservative for for kind of poverty alleviation and maybe a broader question you know how do you how do you sort of think about the the role of welfare in in supporting families yeah another very complicated question so i think you know these these are priorities sort of a child allowance or expanding the child tax credit i think has been a big priority on the left for a number of years actually went back there was an event at brookings in 2017, I think. And I was on a panel and I'd forgotten. You get to a certain age and you like forget about things you've done. And, uh-huh. and so I had to go back and watch it and make sure I didn't say anything four years ago that like I'm now totally contradicting, which fortunately I was I was consistent. But this was 2017. There was a new paper about creating child allowances, a universal child tax credit. So it's it's been a goal on the left for a while. The surprising thing, I think, as you meant, as you sort of alluded to, is that there has been in the Wonka sphere, not so much in among members of Congress, but among among conservative wonks, there's been a fair amount of support for a child allowance or expanded child tax credit. It certainly caught me by surprise. And I think the sort of politics there, I think that there's sort of a camp of kind of anti-poverty conservatives like myself, who who sort of think a lot about welfare policy and the lessons of welfare reform that we took away. To some extent, there's an age division there where like we were we were there in the 1990s and took away these lessons and worry about work disincentives, marriage disincentives, single parenthood and, and things like that. But the other camps are sort of more receptive, I think, to a child allowance. And those camps would be, I think, you know, the populist nationalists, you know, this would sort of be Orrin Cass and American Compass, probably a lot of folks that are in the audience right now. I think it's definitely where a lot of energy is on the right, especially among young, young conservatives, you know, who believe that the economy has failed. A lot of people and families, and that there's a lot of people who want to get married or have kids and they can't afford to. So this appeals to them. There's another group, the pronatalists, you know, that just think babies are good. I mean, who among us doesn't think babies are good? But they think, you know, we ought to we ought to be promoting more kids. We ought to be having more traditional one worker, one breadwinner families. And the child allowance appeals to them because it would it would make those things easier. And also, there's the the sort of reformicons that were kind of wonk pop stars, you know, maybe four or five years ago, seems like a long time. turns out we only, our level of our constituency was about this thin in retrospect. But that group was pushing an expanded child tax credit, you know, years ago as kind of their main policy priority. So there's a lot of support on the right. I am in the camp that that worries a lot about it. So I've, I've sort of been opposed to some of the expansions. I have my own proposal coming out that will propose an expansion to the child tax credit, but not not a fully refundable one where you get it even if you don't work, even if you have no income, whereas what's passed under Biden and what Romney has proposed and others have proposed is a credit that everybody would get regardless of work. So, you know, on the Democratic side, this has been less controversial. And I think that there has been a desire. The push that came from kind of Senators Biden and Brown has been going on since 2014, 2015, something like that. 
But even back before that, I think that there has been a feeling that the 1996 reforms, which obviously passed under President Bill Clinton, and there was a lot of Democratic involvement in that policymaking, there's, you know, been a belief that 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 was like an actively bad policy thing that happened, at least a pretty consistent belief on the left about that. And then I think that there's also, you know, been this longtime push that it hasn't, it's happened at the municipal level. So, you know, DC, I guess it was like 10 years ago that DC passed its pre-K three and pre-K four, but a push in in some places for expanding options for public child care and then pre-pre-K options as well. And I think that there's been a lot of debate about, right, like which one of those do you want to push money in? Do you want to make it so we have kind of like a French style crash system where you can have public child care starting at birth? Do you want to do something like a child allowance? Do you want both? Are those both good policies to have? Because there's a number of countries that actually have both. So I think this has been part of our infrastructure of social spending that folks have wanted for a while. I think it's actually probably worth just stepping back and thinking about how... So, I mean, the 96 TANF fight was like this huge, right? Like on the front page of newspapers, really, really big debate in Congress about it. The ACA was obviously an extremely protracted public fight. And this quite large, probably the biggest social policy in like 50 years, kind of came in sort of suddenly and under the radar. I've done a bunch of reporting where I've actually told people that it exists, which is always really funny. <laughs> and, you know, it's not it's not a permanent thing yet. And I think that a lot remains to see how how this will, whether it'll be made permanent in the next five years and what it would look like and whether there'd be trade-offs. But, you know, I, I think that that everybody agrees that, I mean, people are just shocked. And I think it's really going to change people's lives next month when they start getting the money. Again, it's been amazing reporting with people and just being like, you know, if you have two or three kids, you could be getting hundreds, possibly thousands of dollars a month with relatively, I mean, no no strings attached, right? And it comes monthly directly to you, which is very unusual outside of a program like Social Security, something like that. And I'm just, I'm very, very interested to see, like, I think it's going to have really life-changing effects that are even hard to predict right now, even though the United States, again, is a little bit unusual in not having something like this in a lot of our peer countries do. Yeah. And it'll, it'll be interesting to see whether there, whether there is a big fight. I mean, there's, there's a possibility yeah. that, there, that there isn't, which is kind of a you know, nightmare for me. But as Annie said, like people yeah. are going to start getting checks in the mail next month. And all of this supposedly goes away at the end of the year, except people will file for taxes next year and, and, and get the benefits when they file their tax returns, but then it, in theory, it goes away. But of course, you know, Democrats don't want that to happen. It looks like the strategy is going to be, you know, try to extend it to through 2025, which, oh, by coincidence, you know, is, is when the TCJA provisions expire, which was, you know, the, the major tax policy that passed under the Trump administration. And so mm-hmm. we're going to get to 2025 and Republicans are going to want their tax cuts made permanent and Democrats will be like, hey, we could do that. It's also, I mean, (laughs) it's worth noting the history. It's pretty, right? Like it is just a, I think that this is like a truism that is actually true in American policy life. Once you give people something, it's pretty hard to take it away. Quite difficult to be the person who takes the like free cash to help you with your kids. Like, I think it's going to be, it's going to be tough. And it nearly happened in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that we had this CTC expansion. I think it's worth noting that. And again, as Scott's been pointing to, the politics here are interesting and complicated. It's not sort of as straightforward as other issues that Senators Rubio and, and Lee nearly got this 
very large CTC expansion into that bill. So obviously, I mean, there is just a lot of Republican support. And I kind of wonder if actually there might be more Republican support in the states where, you know, there's there's some really high poverty Republican states. And and the fact that this is coming, the fact that it isn't, that it's just cash for families that that could support a parent staying home with little kids. You know, I do. I think that there could be there could be pretty bipartisan support for it. Kind of transitioning a little bit, Annie, I'd love to give you a chance to just talk a little bit about UBI and why you sort of think it's a, a viable policy solution. It's somewhere between a novel idea and a, and a, and a practical one that's been floated around, maybe incubated at, at different levels of government and, and in different places at different times. So yeah, just talk a little bit about your defense of it and, and why you think it may be a viable tool for economic health and, and maybe even changing labor force dynamics. Yeah. So look, like because I know everybody here is a very close reader of, of the book. The book comes to the conclusion that UBI for kids, which is what a child allowance is, is a really good idea and, and probably the most defensible idea. So now we have like something like UBI in Social Security for old folks, which I think we can talk about policy changes for, for Social Security. But it's, it's a really effective program. People really, really like it. It's run really well, all that. And then now we have a UBI to support children, right, who have no ability to change the circumstances in which they grow up, right? And we know that it is so important that they grow up in families with some stability, some security, food on the table, ability to stay in school, all of that good stuff. So that's that's great. And then the push that I've been on is to make policies more UBI-like, right? Less complicated, less administratively burdensome for people to apply for and for the government to administer. And so it's it's been really interesting to watch that happen. You know, we haven't talked much about TANF, but say what you will about it, but it's really complicated in some cases. And the child allowance isn't. It's really pretty simple. It's pretty elegant. I think we could talk about UBI as a policy. You know, I don't think it's actually viable. I don't think any, right, you still don't see even people on the very far left pushing for something like it. I actually think on the left, something like guaranteed jobs or heavily subsidized jobs are a more likely path to go down. But I think that there's a lot, there's a lot in the case for making things simple and accessible for people and making them kind of light and easy for the government to administer so that we don't have so much bloat. Great. Scott, any any thoughts on that, Rodley? Obviously, like I think it's important to acknowledge that like kids, you know, don't choose their parents. It's very appealing to try to think about helping kids, you know, who can't be held responsible. Like some ways we look at adults and we're like, oh, you made bad decisions. You know, we're going to give you limited help because you made choices along the way. But of course, those adults were kids once and and like kids don't act rationally. If you're a teenager or or have ever had teenagers or ever been a teenager, teenagers don't don't act rationally by any anybody's definition. And so. It's important to acknowledge that, I think, that like every time you look at an adult and you're like, you made bad choices. Well, people are the product of all the experiences that they've had along the way and the disadvantages and advantages they've had along the way. I think it's not so simple as we should give kids the UBI because we shouldn't be able to hold them accountable for things in the same way that we would hold adults accountable for them because the money you know, is going to their parents. And so it would be one thing if we were giving every kid a trust fund or a baby bond, which actually like is something I'm going to propose in my paper coming out that they can't use until they become an adult. And maybe that even incentivizes them to sort of pursue choices that will promote upward mobility too. But if we're giving, if we're giving, giving cash to parents, I think while it's true that most parents, you know, will 
prioritize their kids, will know how to prioritize their kids. It's not always the case. And life's complicated. Family decisions are complicated. I have been a single parent myself, so I'm not somebody to like demonize single parents by any stretch. But I think it's very possible for things like a UBI or even a child allowance to incentivize decisions among parents that aren't necessarily going to be in their in their kids' best interest, whether that's causing them to work less, causing them to not delay childbearing until they're married. So that's what I worry about. And I think, you know, in some ways, if there are people in the audience that are, that are sort of taking away from the conversation about child allowances, like who could be against child allowances? Like that's, that's the kind of concern that folks like me have. And certainly those would be extended to the universal basic income for sure. Yeah, maybe kind of looking forward, I, I know we talked a little bit about kind of post-pandemic recovery. There seems to be kind of this, this weird phenomenon going on right now where some of the pandemic benefits, such as unemployment insurance, are kind of dragging on even as we're kind of the economy's reheating. And yet we're also, you know, experiencing kind of a labor shortage. And there, there's a lar- large demand for jobs right now. And there's not necessarily individuals to fill that. Any another Atlantic article wrote kind of explored this phenomenon. Can you maybe talk about the dynamics, you know, at play there and, and maybe what role, you know, the government might have or, or employers might have in, in kind of getting people back to work in the long term? Yeah. So I think that there's kind of like this short term question of why are we seeing like when you average it out, 400, 500,000 jobs a month versus like a million? And then I think that there's the longer term question which is that we have pretty low labor force participation rates, particularly for lower income workers, for women. And I think that, so there's like a cyclical question and a structural question. And in some ways, I think the cyclical question one way or another would take care of itself in the fullness of time, right? Like when everybody feels more confident participating in the economy, when schools are open, when childcare centers have reopened, when everybody's vaccinated, And when we sort of normalized policy more broadly, when things feel a little bit more normal, when people aren't terrified of taking frontline service jobs, which have become kind of more dangerous for a lot of people, or at least perceived to be more dangerous, you know, I just, I don't know that I worry about the kind of cyclical thing as much. The structural thing, I think, is a really big issue, right? Like, we know that our labor force is sicker than some of our peer nations' labor forces. We know that we have structural barriers to folks joining the workforce. I think that, you know, if you look at the kind of 10 percentage point difference between us and some of our peer countries, I think it's a pretty complicated set of structural forces that maybe have to do at some point with education, with people being trapped in labor markets where there aren't enough jobs. And there, I I think that, you know, probably we want to put a lot more attention into into figuring out how to make sure that, that more people are not feeling like the labor force isn't for them. And so feeling like, you know, at a given rate of unemployment, so hopefully we get down to like something like 4% in the next year, 18 months, maybe two years, that we also have way more people in the labor force. And that would be something that I think would just be good for the economy and good for people in general. Any, anything to add there, Scott? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a mix of reasons, as Annie said, you know, for why sort of employment growth has, has been a little sluggish. I, I do think, you know, that in particular, the American Rescue Plan Act was probably a little bit of overkill in terms of the stimulus slash relief, the savings rate. I mean, to some extent, a lot of what we did in 2020 was overkill. The, the, the savings rate in the United States was off the charts high. And that was because we, you know, what we could do in, in a hurry. And I was actually on the Hill at the time. It was pretty remarkable how quickly legislators did act in, in March and in April. What we could do is cut checks and send them out. 
that was kind of a priority. Unemployment, you know, was close to 20%, depending on the measure that you're using. And that was the right thing to do at the time. Cut checks, get them out. Turned out a lot of people didn't, didn't end up really needing them. A lot of people did, for sure, at the bottom. But they also went to a lot of people who didn't need them. And so people saved them. They couldn't spend them because the economy was basically closed. So I think when we, by the time we get to December, January, sort of pursuing a rerun of that by giving $1,400 per person checks to the families was a really bad idea. I mean, we could have, we could have targeted something to folks who were, who were really in need. But I think between those and the, and the unemployment top off to the normal benefits, I think that has contributed to, to the problem. And then, you know, I think I, I probably disagree with Annie about the extent to which the American labor market you know, is sort of structurally sick versus how much I would describe to potentially like our, our safety net. If you look in the current population survey, which is where we get our unemployment figures from, it actually asks people who are out of the labor force. So out of the labor force means you're not working, but you're also not looking for work. And that's the real big way that the United States is distinguished from, from some other countries. But it asks folks who are out of the labor force whether they want a job. And, and among prime working age men, for instance, whose labor force participation has been falling for 50 years, 60 years, you know, it's not very many of them that say that they actually want a job. A lot of them say they're disabled. A lot of them surely are disabled by anybody's definition. A lot of them are receiving disability benefits and maybe a generation ago would have been working. And you know, there's a debate there about whether people 50 years ago should have been working when they were experiencing real pain or whatever. But it's not the case that there are a lot of people out there on the sidelines saying, oh, I really would like to work, but there just aren't opportunities for me to do that. So that's, I think, an important distinction between how conservatives and liberals maybe view the, the labor market. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in applying for our 2022 Summer Honors Program, please visit the application link in our show notes. If you enjoyed this episode of the Campus Exchange, make sure to give us a rating and to subscribe to the podcast. Also, if you want to learn more about AEI's work on college campuses, visit AEI.org or click the link in our show notes. Lastly, make sure to follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to learn more about upcoming events for students. We'll see you next time.